Are we live? We are live. We're live. Thank you for your patience, everybody. It's 12 noon on September 29th here on here in Connecticut. So I want to officially get started. I want to say welcome everyone to the first season finale of Faded Out. And as we record right now, like I said, it's Saturday, September 29th. It's 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. And if you're on the Faded Out Facebook page, you will notice that we are live video streaming this episode right now. Um, this is one of the studios at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Farmington, Connecticut, which you've heard me mention plenty of times before. And so today I have with me um, my co-producer of sorts, Jason Panette. So thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Of course. And... So today we're going to wrap up the first series on Johnny Gosh and discuss some of the many theories and the many pieces of information that we've covered and starting all the way back to as far as we can go, even with like the first episode. Um, mm. And that's why I wanted Jason to come in because I wanted to have a dialogue about it because there are so many facets to the Johnny Gosh case. And, you know, where does it go from here after doing 30 episodes of a podcast? <laughs> and so if you're watching the live stream, also, we are going to show you some exclusive photos that I took while I was in Des Moines. And while and that, as you know, was episodes 25 through 30. And I will also later on post these pictures up on social media so everyone will be able to see them. And so look at... Guys, let's get right into it. This is episode 31 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. I want to start off by explaining from the time that I started this podcast up to last weekend when I released the six episodes from Des Moines, my thoughts on the real timeline of events, uh, because my thoughts on that have changed. Mm -hmm. um, because when you're an outsider, as most of us are, mm -hmm. and you become interested in a case that happened so long ago, really your only source of information is the internet. Mm. Um, so I want to take you back to January 2017 when I first heard of Johnny Gosh. Um, I hit up Google first. I went straight to the Wikipedia page, all the other links and so on. And I read that there was a documentary, so I watched it. Um, so at that point, I had no reason not to believe them because they all seemed to follow the same narrative right. and that Johnny was sold into a pedophile ring. Um, you know, that, that Paul Benassi was in the back seat of the car, that Johnny was taken to that abandoned house in Colorado with the cavity dug underneath. Um, but what I didn't notice at the time was that um, none of these descriptions looked into the possibility that this was simply a, a one-time crime of opportunity by a, a local person. Um, and 
no one was talking about that, and no one was talking about like the some of the bad characters that were employed by the Des Moines Register. So there was no, there was none. There was no word of any of that, and. Mm. It does seem to me that this podcast has become the one source that looks into the possibility of it being local. Um, obviously, I can't say definitively, but I'm just saying it entertains that notion that it could have been much more simple than than we realized for all these years. So, so I, and like I said, I don't know if we've got everything right. I do struggle with the doubt about that, and so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you and so let's let's talk about that a little bit because sure. you, uh, I first um, told you about my podcast. Like, I can't remember when it was. It was like a few months ago, mm-hmm. um, and that was the first time you had heard of Johnny Gosh, correct? Correct. Yeah, I okay. was two when I was born in eighty, so it was two, and I'd never heard of it before I met you, and it was fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. And what intrigued me about you. And I read it somewhere. You were like, what the F did I get myself into? And I thought that that was interesting. So let's, well, yeah, let's, let's sure. get into the questions that you, yeah. that you sort of came up with that you wanted to talk about. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted to have you expound a little bit more on your comment that you posted. What the F did you get yourself into? What the fuck did I get myself into? Yeah, yeah. Like what, uh, what made you post that? What was, was there something that happened? Was it the entire... Well, the the day the the quote in question mm-hmm. um when uh, i believe it's episode 28 um it's the morning that we went to sam soda's house um and i was very nervous um because you know there's a lot of controversy that surrounds sam soda and i've been warned about him to you know should probably stay away from that guy or be careful. You don't know if he's the type of guy that answers his door with a shotgun. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I really was having thoughts in my head that morning that it's, I, I didn't really think anything was going to happen, but I did sort of think like, am I going to die today? Like, wow, really? Yeah. Like, like, and so I like, I'm in the car driving to meet Mark, who I went with to Sam's house and um, just sort of uh, sort of offhandedly in the car, I go, the fuck have I gotten myself into? <laughs> and so that was what that was in reference to, was going, okay. to, going to Sam Soda's house. Okay, do you think that fear was manifested throughout your research on this and the media and how things were played out? Well, yeah, I mean, because uh, there's so, like I said, there's so much just as Sam Soda as a character within mm. the Johnny Gosh case. Mm-hmm. And um, he even said it when we met with him. He's like, I'm, I'm sure you Googled me. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. It's, you know, I talk about misinformation a lot. We'll talk about a mischaracterization of a person. When mm. we talked to him, he was, he was interesting. Mm-hmm. He had excellent recall. Um, he was funny, actually. He, he, you could tell he has sort of a, sort of a sense of humor, sort of a definitely a rough around the edges kind of a guy. Mm-hmm. But um, it was sort of like um, just you know just just the reading up on someone and the research that you do without ever meeting a person, like that right. you have you know you don't realize 
all these preconceived notions that you right, have. Right, right. Yeah. And that's interesting. And I think the media plays a role in your preconceived notion and everyone's preconceived notions of what they're covering. I wanted to also dive in a little bit more and we could come back to Sam Soto a little bit, but I wanted mm -hmm. to dive in a little bit more on your thoughts on the media and how they reported on this case. I mean, at this point, like before we got on the show today, we were talking about urban legend and these theories mm -hmm. and this case has grown bigger and bigger and it's still in the national narrative in a smaller extent and you're putting it out there even more but what was the role what role did the media play one in your research and two in how the how johnny gosh's story was told well it's like i said too a lot of the reports um don't talk about local people um you know if you google johnny gosh you're going to find a lot of clickbaity type of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're going to, you can go down so many different rabbit holes uh, searching the, <laughs> oh, the Johnny Gosh case, and I, which I'm sure you know, because <laughs> you're, a, you're a guy who likes to do his research. So. <laughs> yes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you, you can find a lot of stuff that's like uh, the, the, the most silly of things, like it was the Illuminati or it was, uh, it was MK Ultra mm -hmm. or it was, um, you know, yeah. it's like I get really frustrated at that stuff because it's like, come on. Right. You know, yeah. but and it's like, um, but, you know, getting back to the original point, though, is that uh, there wasn't there didn't seem to be a lot of media coverage in the early days. Like I did two episodes on the early reports mm -hmm. um, of newspaper clippings and. I also, when I was in Des Moines, I got to go to the one of the libraries there, and Don uh, Patachny and I went through the microfilm, and there, I want to say that it wasn't, um, it didn't seem like it was headline news for some reason, like sort of like it was, um, it was always an article buried somewhere within the paper. Mm -hmm. um, so it sort of speaks to the fact that he's going to turn up somewhere. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like, yeah, it's horrible that he's missing, um, but we're looking for him and, and he's going to turn up. Mm. That, that sort of seemed to be the attitude mm -hmm. uh, in the beginning. And I think that's how it was treated by the media in the very beginning. Um, you know, there weren't a whole lot of TV news reports just after it happened. There were a few. Like, in which you can see clips of them in the documentary of, you know, there's that news clip of John and Noreen sitting on their uh, their front stoop. Yeah. Um, there's that one. There's a few other ones. Um, but really, that was it, though. And I think uh, I, I do have to credit Noreen Gosh. And because I said this in my very first episode, I said and um, and I stand by it. It was one of the I think the first sentences I said on this podcast um, that Johnny's story has been out there for all these years, these 36 years, mm -hmm. um, because of Noreen, because mm -hmm. of his mother. And I have to uh, widely credit her for that. I mean, she's the reason that we know who Johnny is. Mm -hmm. if, if it wasn't for her tenacity for all those years, like always keeping Johnny in the spotlight, always keeping the story going, um, any any resource any tv show she could get her hands on um that's that's why johnny gosh is such an epic story mm -hmm. because 
if she hadn't done that, well, Johnny would have just been one of the other thousands of missing cold cases. Right. So. Right. Yeah, you know, it's, um, I think Johnny Gosh's story has stayed on the national spotlight, maybe even in a little smaller extent, because it, when it happened in the 80s, there wasn't a whole lot of reports on it, like you said. But when we went as a country and transitioned into the internet and social media, mm-hmm. it opened it up again. That's how we found That's how you found it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there that played a role in keeping that story. But speaking about Noreen, let's talk about Noreen a little bit. Okay. Um, it seemed at one point there was a turn. She turned on the show a little bit. She uh, yeah. she was a little upset. She attacked you personally online. Mm-hmm. Um, and I noticed in the Facebook group there was some complaints that the supporters were, uh, um, her supporters were being attacked and leaving the group. Yeah. And you have been ta- attacked by some of Noreen's supporters as well. Mm-hmm. Not just Noreen publicly posting against Faded Out. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what changed for Noreen? Well, Noreen Gosh is a double-edged sword because, uh, mm-hmm. because I stand by what I just said about her, that right. it's because of her mm-hmm. that Johnny's story is out there. Mm-hmm. Um, if it were not for her tenacity, um, we wouldn't be talking about him. We wouldn't care about him. We wouldn't um, have that personal connection mm-hmm. that we that we feel like we have. Mm-hmm. Um, but also to to answer your question of when she turned on the show, she was aware of the show from the very beginning because she was one of the first people that I found contact information for. And very early on, I would say within the first couple of episodes. Um, I tried calling her. I left her a voicemail. I actually did that twice. Um, a few weeks later, I was like, okay, that's not going to work. So maybe I can send her a letter in the mail. So I did that and still got no answer. Mm-hmm. So so she was aware of who I was from the very beginning. Okay. And I think I'm kind of thinking that maybe because, uh, you know, Noreen is from a different generation. Mm-hmm. Maybe she just heard like the word podcast and was like, oh, ew, podcast, no. And it was probably something like that. And I think, so I think that was it. That was, I think, why she ignored me at first. Mm -hmm. Um, But she didn't seem to have a problem. I think she was was fine with it existing um, just as long as I agreed with everything that she believed. Her, 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 Her version, yeah. It wasn't until it progressed and we started getting into Yellow Bag, mm-hmm. and then we talked to Chris Burge, mm-hmm. and then I got to talk to Ron Sampson, and then I, you know, heard. I mean, Yellow Bag told me about Wilbur Milhouse, mm-hmm. and um, then I I spoke to her ex husband John Senior, and I think she didn't like any of that. Um, so that was when that happened when she falsely accused me of being someone posing as a private investigator or an investigator, whatever she said, on, on Facebook. And she put my picture on johnnygosh.com and she put it on her Facebook page. And she said, uh, this is a photo of Sarah Dimio. She is um, posing as an investigator um, on the Johnny Gosh case. We have no affiliation. Or, or, and she's collecting funds for her, for her own benefit. 
um, and uh, we have no connection to this woman, or and she has no connection to the Johnny Gosh Foundation. Um, well, I was kind of being nice when I f- first addressed this in the podcast because what I said was that she misunderstood who I was, but the truth is she did know who I was. Um, and, and also, too, uh, Ron Sampson sent me emails from her, forwarded me emails from her, mm. um, just trying to, because it looked like we were going to get to meet with her for a while when I came to Des Moines. Um, and so it was looking like it was going in a positive direction, but it wasn't until after I spoke to Ron and spoke to John Sr. Mm-hmm. that she decided to post that. And I think that does kind of speak to, um, I'm going to pull up a, a quote. Um, a pastor told me this oh. and uh, in a private message. And he, the reason I'm pulling, pulling up what he said is because he said it better than me, better mm. than I could. So, okay. And this is what this, this pastor said to me. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, um, Noreen has publicly attacked you, but your theory is no different than one Noreen held at one time. Mm-hmm. Noreen obviously has no problem flipping her narrative and uh, pretending that that's what it's been what she believed all along. And then he goes on to say, I don't think it so much is that Noreen disagrees with the facts. It is more that Noreen owns the Johnny Gosh brand. And, um, wow. and in her, it says, in her mind, you have no right to be there. And then he says, I remember hearing a psychologist say one time that people who have been traumatized and made to feel helpless often overreact by finding one thing in life they can control and controlling that thing unto oblivion. And the last thing he says, Noreen couldn't protect her son, but she can protect the Johnny Gosh narrative. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about this before we started today. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I feel like that's what it is. Like yeah. uh, she can't, she couldn't protect Johnny, um, but she, she can control the Johnny Gosh story. Mm-hmm. And that's why um, only, that, only that narrative that she owns is the only story you see when you Google Johnny Gosh's name. Right. And so it's because she can control that one thing. She couldn't control the fact that she never saw her son again, mm-hmm. but she can control the the story and she can cultivate that story of everything that happened to him. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that she can be protective over. Um, and yeah, yeah, and that makes sense. Um, yeah, we did talk about that a little bit, you know, and this whole thing with, with Noreen kind of the transition there. And there was a lot of, a lot of, um, animosity in the chat and people trying yeah. to call you. Yeah. One guy, one guy on, uh, I mean, I won't, I won't call out his name or anything, but, um, yeah, he essentially, uh, this is a guy who was a listener mm-hmm. and, um, he he started off fine at first, but he started to get weird. He started to ask me weird questions and stuff, and um, he ended up private messaging me some private questions. And then I just got a feeling that he was um, sharing like f- false information about me to Noreen, or was kind of like trying to stir up drama. There were a few people mm-hmm. in the group that were I think were only there as an attempt to stir up drama, mm-hmm. and. 
so I decided to remove him from the group. I quietly didn't did it. I didn't um didn't mention it. I didn't even say anything to him. I'm just like I'm just gonna delete. Mm-hmm. And so he realized that he was removed from the group, and he started like messaging me on Facebook again, like not even giving me an opportunity to answer. Just like why did you delete me? Why did you, the? And then I see that I got a missed call on Facebook Messenger, and yeah. it's like. D- don't ever fa- don't ever call somebody on Facebook, even yeah. if you know them, actually, because that, that's just a weird thing to do. Right. It's like, I don't know. I don't actually know why that feature even exists on Facebook, to be honest. But right. but, you know, especially if you don't know that person. Right. You know, it, 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 it was crazy when I heard about it. I was like, it is creepy. You don't mm-hmm. just call someone's personal Facebook page. I mean, I'll call my wife or I'll call my son on Facebook if I can't get them on my phone mm-hmm. first. You yeah. know, I'm not calling someone on a Facebook messenger, especially somebody who you don't know. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. It was unfortunate because I think your heart was in the right place. Yeah, and 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 also, too, just to get back to, like, the false accusations mm-hmm. um, that Noreen put out there, I think it was... Well, obviously, it's it's an attempt for, you know, for me to lose credibility. And I think that's, you know, that's what she she's done to a couple of people over the years. And Sam Soda even said it when we spoke to him. He said, mm-hmm. you know, he, he was like, well, she's hurt a few people over the years with the false accusations that she's made. Right. But he said, and I agree with him, and it took me a while to agree with him. He said, but I forgive her. Because you don't know what you're going to do in right. the, like, you know, no parent should ever have to mentally prepare for something like that. No. So no. I get it. And um, when you look at it that way and when you look at, at it the way the, the pastor laid it out to me, it's like you can't be angry. And it's like, I mean, you can, mm-hmm. you have the right to be, mm. but it's almost like you physically can't. It's right. like, it's like I, you know, you, it, you just, you, when you look at it in that way, I almost feel guilty mm-hmm. for for bringing yeah. up for well, bringing up a new idea on something, or to bring up somebody like Wilbur Millhouse and um, right. So yeah, you almost feel guilt about it. But this is what what I said to you earlier too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I struggled back and forth quite a bit on do I just let her have that? Do I? Um, is it really my business to be this outsider who? is trying to help solve this cold case. And, you know, I think, like I said, I think back to what John Sr. said to me. He said, we weren't the victims. Johnny was the victim. And so that's how I look at it. It's mm-hmm. like he was this, by all accounts, this really good, kind 12-year-old kid who never had a chance at life, didn't yeah. deserve what happened to him, no. didn't deserve for it to be made into this epic urban legend. Yeah. Um and whoever did it to him uh, got away with it. Um, and so that's how I look at it. And yeah. I also said, too, that um, Noreen and John are each a victim. They're not the victim. Mm. Johnny's the victim. Mm. Um, but even looking at it that way, too, even if you do just kind of look at it as like, well, you know, Noreen was his mother. Um, just let her have that so she can have her peace. Well, the issue with that is that Johnny had two parents. Right. And um, his father deserves answers every bit as much as his mother does. Right. So. Right. Well. So, yeah. 
This is the last episode of Faded Out. Mm-hmm. Was there anything that you wanted to say to Noreen's, um, you know, before we close this uh, season out on the Johnny Gosh story? Just that um, I hope she finds peace. Yeah. Um, I know that she doesn't want to hear or discuss any idea that is not what she agrees with. Um, she doesn't have to agree with me. She can think I'm full of shit or whatever. That's, you know, right. she, that's, that, right. that's, she's absolutely within her right to do that because right. nobody asked me to cover this story. I chose this story on my own. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so it comes with the territory, right. you know, but I mean, but I hope she realizes that my intentions are good. Yeah. I'm, I'm not the things that she accuses me of being. Mm-hmm. And, and I think she knows that, like I said, um, but and like I said, I hope she can let go of some of that bitterness. Just realize that the people um, who are interested in this case, even if they disagree with her, um, they're not your enemy. I'm not your enemy. You know, right. like they're interested because they care. Right. So. Right. So that's it. All right. Well, let's uh, transition a little bit. Um, you just recently you got back from your Iowa trip. I did. Um, I was lucky enough to, am lucky enough to have a friend, a couple mm-hmm. of friends who live in Des Moines. Yeah. And she's been listening since the very beginning. And she, uh, so she offered one day, she's like, oh, do you want to, my friend Kat, she was like, do you want to want to come out? You can like interview people here. And wow. I'm like, yeah. And that was a few months back when she did that. And um, so, yeah, the first day in Des Moines, touching down, um, uh immediately got off the plane and she said uh all right come on we're gonna we're gonna go to 42nd and marcourt um and we do have some pictures of that so if you're watching the live stream right now um you can see some of the pictures um that's 42nd and marcourt right there and that's the corner i'm standing in the spot actually um where he was taken from and that was quite a moment um yeah so that's that's the stop sign with the street signs on it and that was just that was just I, there's there's no words you know just to yeah. it's like oh my god if this it's like if this stop sign could talk you know right, right. um that's, but yeah it's interesting yeah it seemed like there you came back so excited yeah and you know you got more interviews and 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 more audio than i think you were even expecting absolutely to get and we as fans were lucky enough that you shared that six episodes mm-hmm. of some great, compelling conversations that you had. So I, I just had a couple questions about the trip in its, itself. Can you share with us some of the key takeaways from your trip? Well, yeah, definitely. It, it turned out to be more than I expected um, because um, the weeks leading up to the trip out there, I was like... I don't know what's going to happen when I get out there. I'm probably not going to uncover anything new. Um, you know, it's going to be great to meet some of these people in person, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to add anything that mm. I haven't said already. But that turned out to be a total surprise um, yeah. <laughs> because it was to to meet Ron Sampson and Mark Hinshaw in person was awesome, and to get to have that space in mark's office that we that we kept meeting at and meeting yellow bag was Mm -hmm. incredible because um 
Well, let me get back to one thing first, because sure. um, we didn't just go to 42nd and Marcourt when Kat picked me up. Um, we also, I, I kind of walked around the area mm-hmm. uh, just within the, the neighborhood. And one thing I went up to was the churchyard. Um, and so here's some images of the churchyard. Uh, just if, just so you can see the terrain there. Um, as you can see, if you're looking at the live stream, it was, it, it's not an easy area to walk through, even in broad daylight. At one point, I was saying that into the mic and I tripped. Mm. So, <laughs> um, so yeah. <laughs> but, and it, it definitely sort of spoke to the idea that, um, you know, it's, it's not impossible. It's highly likely Johnny could walk through that area um, if his pickup spot had been at, up at the corner at 42nd and Ashworth. Mm-hmm. Um, but if his route was on the street after that at, on Marcourt, um, then I was like, well, yeah, I can absolutely see why he decided to call his circulation manager and ask for it to be moved to Marquardt mm-hmm. um, because this sucks <laughs> to yeah. walk through. Right. And I'm not dragging a wagon and it's broad daylight out. So yeah. I was like, I was like, okay, I get it. Mm. Um, but yeah, I want to uh, getting on to meeting Yellow Bag. We talked oh, yeah. about we talked about Wilbur Millhouse mm-hmm. and what kind of a, a bad character Wilbur Millhouse really was. Mm. And the day that I met Yellow Bag, we met at, at a coffee shop first that day, and then I asked him. We talked about the bottoms mm-hmm. a little bit, and that is when we drove over. Oh, oh, I actually want to get back to something because the image on, if you're watching the live stream right now, is uh, a lot of stuff that Ron Sampson gave to me Mm -hmm. uh, when I first met him. He had this big white envelope filled with bumper stickers and uh, missing persons flyers and all this original literature from the time where it was an actual physical search. Mm -hmm. And included in that was a couple of the Help Find Johnny Gosh Yellow Buttons, which um, if you can see me right now, I'm wearing it on my hat. Um, So, so yeah, that was pretty, that was an incredible thing to have. And Mm -hmm. I was like, and I remember when I, when he handed it to me and I pulled out the buttons, you can, I think you can hear me say it on the episode. I was like, I've been wanting one of these. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah. And so I wear it with pride. I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be wearing it. Um, so yeah, that's what that was. And so, uh, if we could get back to the bottoms though, um, that was, was an experience to be at the bottoms, um, because, um, it's not a great part of town. Uh, there's a rendering plant there, which you can smell. Really? Um, and according to Yellowbag, he said that the smell was about 10 times worse back in the 80s. And the Bottoms is where Wilbur Millhouse's house was. And on one of the images, um, you can see Wilbur Millhouse's house mm-hmm. and the shed right behind his house. Wow. And that, that was creepy because mm-hmm. you could tell that that yard had not been tended to in a long time right um the grass was overgrown um i'm pretty sure it was abandoned uh i mean it did say it said that it was for rent um but it it was just um 
we walked out and there was mosquitoes like you wouldn't believe and um just walking through we couldn't stay out there for more than a few uh, outside for more than a few minutes because the mosquitoes were so horrendous and yeah you can just tell that the bottoms is not really the area that you want to be living in Mm -hmm. and that and yet that was where wilbur millhouse lived at Mm. that time and just imagine just imagine living there First of all, it's not a great area. Secondly, at the time when when the smell of the rendering plant was overpowering, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh my god, I can just, get just a, I can't I, imagine yeah, the mosquitoes, yeah, yeah, yeah. the smell. Oh, that'd be yeah. brutal. So and like and that it was ominous looking. I bet. And it was yeah. like, you know, you look through there, and it's like, you know, if you ever run, wanted to get rid of a person, I mean, this would be a good place to do it. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, and like I said before, I can't definitively say that that's the case mm-hmm. but i'm just saying it is a likely i want i want to say likely possibility um especially considering the sort of incriminating stuff that millhouse used to say regarding johnny the mm-hmm. the sort of um you know nothing would have happened to him if he just kept his mouth shut and the fact that he said it more than once and he said it in front of people so mm-hmm. it's just one of those things where it's like, mm, maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah, maybe there's something there. Yeah, interesting. So the Iowa, the Iowa, Iowa trip, success. Yes, it was great. And the content Absolutely. that you shared with us was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I guess my last question on the Iowa trip is then: How did that trip influence your thoughts on this Johnny Gosh case? What did it change? What did it confirm? What questions do you still have? It's interesting because uh, when you look back at the very first episode and up until now, my thoughts on what actually happened have changed. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, originally I believed the stories that are all out there about like the pedophile rings that reach as far as the White House and whatnot. uh, and you know all of that, and I believed mm-hmm. Paul Benassi through and through at mm-hmm. the very beginning. Now, not so much. Yeah. Um, my thoughts on certain people have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, Sam Soda is being one of them. Definitely gets a bad rap, mm-hmm. um, mostly because of accusations put out about him. Um, and he he was so willing to talk and so open. And quite nice when we were there because mm-hmm. we knocked on his door and after a few minutes of just meeting him at the door, he invited us to come around to the back of the house and we sat on his back porch and did that entire interview for like two hours. Wow. Um, and he was engaged. He was and engaged he was- and he was interesting and he was like, and he was, he had such excellent recall of mm-hmm. everything and um so and and very willing very like like he was very ready and willing to Mm. to share this story from his perspective um and that was something that i never thought was going to happen um so that so absolutely my thoughts on sam soda have changed what did you think was going to happen well i just i didn't i guess originally i okay well originally i thought that he you know, like people have suggested that he knew what happened to Johnny. Um, and, you know, like I said, there was that fear of going to his house that morning. Right, right. Um, 
wondering if I was going to come back again, having back. Not, it wasn't really a, a, so much a, a, a fear as much as it was just that, you know how sometimes you just have that one thing just lingering in the back of your mind yeah. and it's like, uh, I wonder if, uh, it, it was extraordinary. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, a compelling uh, episode and you said it multiple times in the podcast where you were really surprised with the meeting and yeah. that your opinion, like you were really... Yeah, and oh, this is what I was going to say. As I, I think I, I say it in the episode too. It's mm -hmm. like, it never occurred to me that if I ever got to meet Sam Soda, that he would be clearing his name. Because to me, that's exactly what he did. I was like, I was like wow, this guy really was just an investigator trying to get to the truth. Mm -hmm. He has some um, unconventional ways of working. Mm -hmm. um, he's definitely a guy who is rough around the edges. And I can certainly see when he was almost 40 years younger, he was probably much more intense. Yeah. Um, so he had a, a, an intense aura about him, with, yeah. even in his, in his older age? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it was a fascinating episode and one of my one of my favorites to listen to. Um, so I got a couple things that I pulled from the Facebook page. Mm -hmm. uh, just different questions is something that was intriguing that I saw in uh, Johnny and another boy who went missing were wearing Kim's Academy in Des Moines, Iowa merch. Do you mm -hmm. think this is relevant or a coincidence? Um, I mean, I kind of think it's a coincidence, but at the same time, I would say, well, we don't know that it was a coincidence. Mm -hmm. Maybe it, you know, you could entertain the possibility that it was somebody who uh, had hung out around Kim's Academy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because like I don't, I don't say anything that I put out there to be fact. Right. So I mean, I would say that while I personally kind of think it's a coincidence. I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't discount it. Sure. Yeah. Sure. That's kind of where I stand yeah. on it. I was just curious to see what you thought. I, I noticed that it was brought up a couple of times. It kind of went down that wormhole a little yeah. bit to do a little bit of research. And I was curious to know your thoughts on that. And the other one you said, do you, and so this, do you still hold the opinion that Johnny was choked out with the straps on the newspaper bag? Absolutely. Um, at this point, you, you cannot convince me that there was any other way that he was subdued that morning because, um, you know, we had been like tossing ideas back and forth, me and everyone else mm -hmm. of like, uh, you know, how how could he have gotten into the car? Did he get mm -hmm. in willingly? Why would he get in willingly, especially if he had all his papers and he had his dog with him? Right. So it was like, well, why would he get in willingly? But at the same time, it's like, well, Chris Burge um, even said that. He never heard a commotion. He never saw anything odd that morning. Johnny was just gone. Mm. So whatever happened had to be very quiet. Um, and you couldn't, like, even if you had access to a taser or a stun gun or something like that. I mean, for God's sake, if you get, get if a 12 year old gets hit with a taser, he's going to let out a scream. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's not going to be a, a quiet way to subdue a person. Mm -hmm. um, so if that had been the case, the whole neighborhood would have heard it. Right. Um, so, yeah, you you cannot convince me at this point that there was any other way than the way we laid it out um, in that episode where if because, you know, the the bag was missing as well. So he had to have been wearing it. 
Um, so that's really all it takes. And when I did that little reenactment with yellow bag, mm-hmm. you know, all he had to do, cause he had the advantage of being seated. So he had the advantage of gravity. All, all I, I was like awkwardly hunched over, um, the, the passenger side, all he had to do was reach up and pull. Um, and there was nowhere for me to go. There was really, because especially if I'm standing in that position, you're hunched over, first mm-hmm. of all. So it's a, already it's an awkward position to be standing in. Mm. Um, he's seated. In, there's nowhere for me to go. If I lean forward, he had all the advantage. If I tried to pull back, all he has to do is, all he has to do is twist it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it only takes a few minutes to knock somebody out that way. And also, too... Hmm. Um, you're not going to be able to scream because you can't if you don't have air. Right. So, so yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm quite positive that that was probably that was, how it was done. Interesting. Um, okay, so another one I'm going to throw out there. Uh, you referenced the note on the dollar bill was reviewed by three experts. Mm-hmm. After their review, did the experts confirm it was Johnny's handwriting? They all seemed to be in agreement that it was. Okay. Um, so, um Maybe maybe it was uh, Johnny who wrote on that dollar bill. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how the science of figuring out somebody's handwriting actually works. I'm not going right. to claim that it's a it's a good or a bad science, but right. uh, I mean, I guess it is possible. I mean, you don't know. We don't know how long he lived after he was taken. Maybe he did have access to a dollar bill and a pen, and just you know, that dollar got circulated around um, different businesses and whatnot until somebody saw the note on it. Mm-hmm. It's entirely possible. Um, John, Johnny's dad, didn't yeah. didn't seem to think that it was credible, though. That it was credible. Okay. Yeah, he didn't seem to think so. Um, hmm. But I don't know. I, I mean, I, I guess it's not impossible. I guess it could be. It could be. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's see what else I got here. So... The effects of the media and their reporting on this case, how did it affect the narrative in the investigation? Um, I think that when you look at the the epic tale that Johnny's story has become, mm-hmm. um, you know, you've got the stories of the satanic cults and the pedophile rings, and then you have a documentary on Netflix that seems to sort of be in agreement with all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think that that definitely uh, gets into the, the public perception of Johnny's case and people tend to always, it's like I said at the very beginning of this live stream, like, you know, that pe- it gets into people's minds yeah. and they sort of believe it. Mm-hmm. But I think there's been very few reports that have looked into uh, the possibility of anything else. I mean, one of the things is when I went to the library and uh, Don and I looked through the microfilm, um, there there seemed to be more, more of an openness to believing that it was, that it was something local. There was no mention, like there was like the first mention of a satanic cult he wrote down the date for me, Don did. It's like, it's like, I want you to read this article from September 22nd of that year. Wow. And that was, the first, that was the first time that the paper quoted Noreen. Mm-hmm. It was also the first time that Noreen said that she thinks he was abducted by a satanic cult. Mm. 
Um, and I think the story of Johnny Gosh did not really go off the rails until Paul Benassi got involved, I would say. Yeah. That's, yeah. When, the, that's when all the other stuff comes about. Right. Yeah. And right. When, you, when you take into consideration, is Paul Benassi really as credible as he's, he's said to be by the media? Mm -hmm. um, because John never believed him. Mm -hmm. um, John tells the story of when he went to, to meet him, which I'm going to talk about that in a second. Um, John talks about, you know, he got some major things wrong about Johnny's appearance. Johnny was the size of a man. Like Johnny was five foot eight. Wow. And okay. that's taller than me. Okay. <laughs> um, so, and he got that wrong. He was like, oh yeah, I guess he came up to my chin or so. And if you've ever seen Paul Benassi, he's not a big guy. He's not at all. He's maybe like, you know, he, he's, he would have been shorter than Johnny actually. He's probably like five, seven or so. Mm -hmm. Um, so he got that major thing wrong. Yeah. Um, and also some other things like the, the, the placement of the scar, I guess, on Johnny's chest, which I don't exactly know what it looked like because I've never seen it. But um, according to John, he said that you could easily see it just in his, uh, under his shirt. Like mm -hmm. it, was, it went up that far. Um, mm -hmm. And he, you know, Benassi got that wrong too. And then, you know, John tells me that he had asked one of the guards, like, well, what does his cell look like? And it's like this, the guard said, like, well, it's plastered with newspaper clippings about, um, about Johnny. And so, so, yeah, I mean, that's, to me, that seems where everything goes off the rails and right. major credibility issues with Paul Benassi. And yet it's sort of, in the world of the Johnny Gosh case, people who study it closely, um, Benassi is widely believed. Hmm. So, yeah, and I think that's where the first real disconnect between the two trains of thought happens. Right. Like, you know, the people who believe that it was local and that it was one thing happened versus the people who believe it was something much, much bigger. Hmm. Okay. So, I mean, the Johnny Gosh story has, has been in... in people's hearts for many years and decades now and it's been a fascinating story to follow to try to understand um but there seems to be a lot of theory not a whole lot of concrete evidence mm -hmm. and that support these theories and this clearly plays well in the media but do you think this podcast has added value or perspective to this unsolved case i would like to think that it added value um mm -hmm. John seems to think that it has, mm -hmm. and Ron Sampson seems to think that it has, mm -hmm. and that means a lot to me to to know that that's how they feel, um, that they you know appreciate the efforts that we've put into this podcast. Um, I think that it's important to look at the local people before you jump to the um, possibilities of. I mean, I know human trafficking is a real thing, yeah. and it's a billion-dollar business, human trafficking and child trafficking. Yeah. So it's not impossible. Yeah. But before you jump to that, you have to look at the local people, yeah. the local people who have yeah. incriminated themselves and had a history of bad behavior and right. abusing children. Yeah. Um, so I think, like I said, this podcast has been the first really the only available thing that 
offers that different take. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe um, the private investigators who told Noreen that, you know, it was a it was an, a national international pedophile ring. The ones who kept it going and keep growing the story, maybe they were just sort of um, taking advantage of her and collecting yeah. a paycheck from her. Right. And also, too, I want to mention that um, it seems to me that Noreen only wants, like I already said, wants to believe her narrative and doesn't want to mm-hmm. entertain the idea that it was anything else other than that. Right. Um, so I think right. maybe, maybe she kept hiring investigators who agreed with her, who only would, would go her, her avenue. And I think that's another thing, too. Like with Sam Soda, Sam Soda thinks it was a crime of opportunity. So mm-hmm. I think that that's what happens. She, um, the moment somebody disagrees with her mm-hmm. is when she falsely accuses them of horrible things and that seems to be her way of like oh well you know he he's not he's not cooperating with my timeline of events so he must be a pedophile Mm -hmm. or you know she must be a con artist posing as an investigator and that's and she i mean she even accused her own ex-husband johnny's father of being involved Mm -hmm. i i mean I got angry enough when I got falsely accused. Imagine being John when yeah. he got falsely accused. But I mean, yeah. and he had, like, I've, you know, if you've heard the episode, you hear him say it. He had the best response. He was like, I asked him about that, and he was like, let them have their day. Because anybody who knew me knew that, you know, that, that Johnny and I were close. So, yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about the Des Moines Register. Okay, and I I heard of in, in a lot of the podcasts, and it was discussed. And I wanted to know: Do you believe that if the Des Moines Register is in bed with pedophiles, more or less? And I think that was a quote that yeah. uh, I pulled from the podcast. Mm-hmm. This is really a huge allegation. Yeah, and I think um, I would say no, not now. All these years later, right, right. But um, I think at the time, I mean, you know, Wilbur Milhouse was arrested in 1975 for a, a sexually abusing a child mm-hmm. and um, didn't get sentenced to jail, got put into rehab for it. Two years later, like he had already worked for the register. Two years later, the register hires him back. Mm-hmm. Three years later, he becomes manager of the year. And so it's like, and then they have that other guy, Frank Sikora, who... Uh, who Sam Soda investigated and got him to admit mm-hmm. that he was um, abusing and fondling other other young paper carriers. Um, it does sort of seem like it was the it was the sweep it under the rug mentality. Yeah, yeah. sort of like because I, I think at, even at the time it was such like you know nobody knew the word pedophile back then. Mm-hmm. So I have to imagine that it's not that the Des Moines Register was involved with anything. I don't think they had any bad intent at any point, but I do think it was just a lack of knowledge and education on how do you deal with a, a pedophile. Even if you don't know the word, how do you how do you deal with somebody who has done this kind of a thing with mm-hmm. a child? Um, you know, maybe you kind of think like, well, they're not going to be in 
a situation where they'll be alone together. So, um, so we probably don't have to worry. They're probably, you know, they're never going to go to each other's house or something. You know, this is strictly work. You know, Mm -hmm. this is like just this, he's a circulation manager. He's probably not gonna, um, have the opportunity to do anything with them. And maybe their mentality could have also have been, maybe he, you know, learned his lesson after getting caught the first time. So I have to think it's a little more of that because, you know, this is like the late 70s, early 80s. Right. When um, when we weren't as um, as up on on these matters as we are now as a society. Yeah. yeah. Everyone's more woke now. Right? Yeah. And yeah. Everyone's social media. We get our information instantaneously. So, yeah. Yeah. It was a little different time back then. You know, speaking about the time. um and, and taking another look into the law enforcement, what were your thoughts on how the law enforcement handled this case in the moments they found out all the way up until today? Well, I think that um, it wasn't taken as seriously as it should have been, and that, like from the initial call to police. And uh, I've talked about this, like, you know, the back then, especially in such a nice neighborhood that Johnny lived in, that kind of thing didn't happen. People didn't just roll up and snatch kids off the street that didn't Mm -hmm. happen there and so i think it was more of a mentality of like oh he must have run away or he must have just gone off and was fooling around somewhere um so i I, so i think it it it's not back then it's it's not treated with the same kind of urgency Mm -hmm. that it is now um when i first spoke to della williams of the missing person support center she said that um you know, the, the, the moment that a child goes missing and it is an abduction, um, I forgot how long she said, but I think she said, like, they have, they have to immediately get their names into NCIC. Mm-hmm. Um, and back then, and I learned this from Noreen watching her interviews on uh, the documentary and whatnot, that at that time, the police had a rule mm-hmm. where they couldn't do anything about it until 48 hours later. And in most yeah. cases, the child is dead by then if mm-hmm. it's an abduction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that was like, that was like not even them being lazy or anything. That was an actual, that was an actual rule. You had to yeah. wait 48 hours yeah, and which is unheard of. It's crazy. Yeah. It's, an, it's, it's unheard of to think. I mean, cause I think the mentality there too was like, we were just saying like, well, yeah. he'll come back. He's just yeah. off. He's goofing off somewhere. You know. And that was happening all the time. Yeah. And which, and which was a, co- that's a common thing to happen right. back then. I mean, right. you know, kids are out and they don't have, there's no cell phones. There's no internet yeah. back then. So as long as they came home at night. Before it gets yeah. dark, right? Yeah. Before that, before, before, before the street, street lights. lights come right. on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what my mom used to say. Yeah. Be home before the street lights came out. Yeah. That was a culture in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, you know, law enforcement, a lot of people have an opinion on, on how the law enforcement handled this. And, you know, they're, they're, I think they, it's fair to criticize mm-hmm. some. Um, and it's been fascinating to kind of read through all this. Uh, but I wanted to go through real quick. I had a couple key players in this, a couple key things, um, and just was going to throw out a name and see your maybe some final thoughts. 
sure. on them. So yeah. let's go back to Sam Soda. I said you okay. said you wanted to touch back on him. So let's throw out Sam Soda first. Well, Sam Soda, uh, I first learned about him while I was already doing the podcast. A listener uh, mentioned if I had ever heard of Sam Soda. And I was like, no, that's a new name for me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, because he's actually kind of a big player in this in yeah. the early years. Um you know, I started to read up on Sam Soda and, uh, you know, heard things about him. Like he was like a really shady character. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, had access to like he would show child pornography at at these talks that yeah. for the organization that he created called Scared Stolen Children Are Reported Every Day. Um, he would give talks on this and he would have access to the child pornography in order to shock people. Um, and there was like all this stuff online you read about him that like he had so many connections to the underworld and, you know, the mafia back then and, uh, this, all these, all these really bad characters. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I was nervous to meet him. Yeah. Um, so that's why I was also very, um, pleasantly surprised when I actually did get the opportunity to talk to him because he was like, well, yeah, I, I showed those images at my scared talks to shock people, to let them know, you know, I'm not bullshitting you. This is a real thing. And as for how he got those images, he says it, he goes, well, back then it was as easy as I just went into the bookstore and they were like selling them under the table, selling those images kind of, you know, like wow. quiet quietly in the back room they had access they had access to it and that was how easy it was for him to just go get those images that's how he got it that's how he got it yeah yeah really uh, just the the guys I've never that, heard that before. the guys the, yeah he mentions it in the in the interview that's how easy it was oh. the guys at the bookstore um had had these images and it was just that easy he just walked in was, and bought them wow that's how he got them wow what an interesting character, though. Absolutely. Interesting character. How about Yellow Bag? What's some final thoughts on Yellow Bag? Yellow Bag is awesome. I mean, because the thing with Yellow Bag is like, this podcast took a turn when I got to episode 13. That was mm-hmm. when, that was the episode that I first talked about Yellow Bag. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time that I mentioned the name Wilbur Milhouse. Mm-hmm. And um, the first time I've ever heard his yellowbacks perspective on Wil- Wilbur Milhouse and that maybe he was like the the person guilty of taking Johnny mm-hmm. um and th- so the whole avenue of learning about Wilbur Milhouse and who Wilbur Milhouse was is to the credit of yellowbag for that first episode that I mentioned him and I mentioned Wilbur Milhouse in episode 13 that is when you know, from episodes one through 12, I'm basically just giving history mm-hmm. that, you know, most people who know about Johnny already know. It's not until the episode with Yellow Bag mm. that, it, that it becomes more investigative. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's to Yellow Bag's credit. And Yellow Bag was so kind and uh, so helpful and willing to talk, too. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember at one point he says, you know, I just... I feel bad. I feel ashamed for not saying more of this years earlier. And it's like, and I remember saying to him and Ron and Mark said to him like, well, you 
you did say something though, and so did your mother. You guys reported this tip to the police, right. and they told you they had it handled. You did what you were supposed to do, mm-hmm. um, and so it's like, well, what else could you have done after that? Mm-hmm. You know, you gave your tip. You know, yeah. what else could you do? Right. You you did your part. Right. Yeah. Right. And I mean, and it's not like and he. He first posted on the Iowa Cold Cases website like two years ago. And so he was already like two years ago starting to tell his story. And I never knew who he was until another listener uh, hit me to what he was saying and said, hey, maybe you should check out this link. There's this guy yellow bag on there telling this really interesting story. And so I did and was able to get in touch with him that way. I Mm -hmm. mean, you know, back then, or I mean, at any point, there was... There was no podcast investigating Johnny's case. So it's like there was no um, uh, no hub for for all the resources yeah. to go to. Right. Um, right. And so it was kind of um, it's kind of like well, it's like Ron said that I think he called it like the the perfect storm sort of serendipitous of us all coming together at this point. Mm. And a lot of that is to the credit of Yellowbag. So if anything, he should never feel ashamed because he's the He's the person that set all of that in motion. Yeah. Yeah. How about Wilbur Millhouse? I mean, Wilbur Millhouse was, even if he's not the person who took Johnny, he was, he was a bad dude. Like he was convicted more than once of sexually abusing, um, you know, young boys. And, you know, even Yellowbag talks about, he would call me in the middle of the night. He wanted me to come over to his house and come around to the back and meet him at the shed out and back. And um, just a lot of like really bad behavior, inappropriate behavior like that. And that like he, I think um, Yellowbag told me at one point uh, when he was arrested, uh, it was found that he had the names and addresses and photos of 2,200 boys in his possession at his house. So he's not a good guy, <laughs> you know? So even if he's not the guilty party in this, mm-hmm. He's still not a good good person. Yeah. And um you know, he lives in a perfect he lived in a perfect area to like abuse someone and get rid of them to and and get away with it. Yeah. So and I guess and I've said this before, it's totally plausible that maybe he wasn't involved with Johnny and was just some some sort of low life who wanted to take credit for it after the fact. Um which is possible yeah. because there could be, a, you know, it's like Sam Soda said, um, it was a crime of opportunity. There was a lot of bad people out mm-hmm. and about back then. Yeah. 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 What about, uh, we talked a lot about Noreen. What about Johnny Gosh's dad? Any final thoughts about that? I love Johnny Gosh's dad. <laughs> he was so, so kind and accommodating to me. Um, and so willing to talk too. Yeah. And there is a difference because I talked to him on two episodes. I talked to him on episode 21 and episode 24. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to the two of them, you can tell he's more guarded in episode 21. The first time that he and I spoke, mm-hmm. he was a little more willing to talk more mm-hmm. when I spoke to him in episode 24. Yeah. Um, so I think Ron Sampson refers to him as being a healthy skeptic mm-hmm. and which I think that that makes sense. Um, yeah. I always referred to him as a realist. 
Hmm. Um, and maybe that's just because I consider myself a realist and maybe I just kind of, I see that trait in myself in another person yeah. or I want to at least. Yeah. Um, so I, I think he's extraordinary. I think that he's, he strikes me as the voice of reason in all of this. Yeah. Um, and tragically, mm-hmm. tragically was not as vocal as his ex-wife is and doesn't have that same sort of control that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he's a really good guy and really deserving of real answers, not just yeah. concocted stories. Right. And yeah, they both are. Yeah. And I do want to, speaking of concocted stories, yeah. um, I want to talk about, I have to pull up what I wanted to say about this. Okay. Because... In Noreen's book, there is that accusation of um, John going to meet Paul Benassi with a Noreen impersonator, a Noreen lookalike. Mm-hmm. And if you're watching the live stream right now, you can see the picture that I took of the book, um, of that page in the book. Um, so I wanted to kind of describe this picture to you a little bit. Like... Um, so, okay, so the image at the top is John and this supposed impersonator. The picture at the bottom is John and Noreen. And it, 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 there's some text in the middle, and it says, Will the real Noreen Gosh please stand up? And in that book, there's a whole accusation that John went to meet Paul Benassi with this Noreen lookalike and that Noreen didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he, we talked about, when I talked to John, we talked about this whole story that existed. And it's like, if you ever wonder why people think that, mm. that's why it's in Noreen's book. Yeah. So that's why people believe that. Right. But, you know, I do want to set the record straight on who this person is. Um, so this supposed lookalike, um, a listener who has become a really good friend of mine is extremely up on the Johnny Gosh case. And he did some dick, some deep digging a while back and he found out who she was. And the way that he puts it, he says, the Noreen impersonator was no impersonator at all. Um, she was another investigator who mm-hmm. worked with Roy Stevens. And Roy Stevens was one of the Gosh's first private investigators. Um, and this woman's name in the picture was Diane Robinette. And this was confirmed by a person by the name of Carla Hall. She's from the Interstate Bureau of, of Investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, so Diane Robinette lived in Omaha. And she's still alive today. Now she lives down in Texas. And it's important to remember, too, that Noreen's book, the vast majority of it was not written by Noreen. It was written by John Zielinski, who, you know, who wrote that that intro that I read mm-hmm. for everyone. And he also made that video, America's MIA Children. Um, but it's a completely concocted story. Um, that that's and that's who that woman actually was. And if you you know if you look at that picture, um, it's you can tell that it's it's not just a picture of two people. It's a cropped picture, and you notice the 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 buttons. Mm-hmm. They're they're each wearing the button on their mm-hmm. sort of lapel, 
Um, so, so that's who that really was. There was no impersonator. That never happened. Hmm. Um, that's a concocted, that was a concocted story by John Zielinski. Hmm. That's fascinating. Um, you know, the, uh, I only had a couple more things here, sure. but, um, I definitely wanted to leave our audience with kind of a recap and the resources out there for reporting missing persons. If you have information that you want to get involved, how can your audience do uh, uh, share this information that they may have? Okay. So, well, there's a lot of things you can do. Like you can, um, some of the organizations that I mentioned, uh, like the Doe Network, um, you can go to the Doe Network and, um, you know, if you think you have a tip to help with a missing person's cold case, um, you know, you can send, send in the, fill out the form that they have on the Doe Network's website. And they have, you know, you can, if you think you may have a tip on a missing person or a John or a Jane Doe, um, you can, you can report that tip through them. Um, there's also Della Williams and Tracy Pampina. Their organization is called the Missing Persons Support Center. Mm -hmm. um, that's more for family members of the missing. Um, like, you know, what do I do? How, like, how do I, like, help me, help me navigate through this sort of a thing. Yeah. Um, that's their organization. So those are some of the, those are just two of the organizations that I've mentioned sort of at length yes. in the, in the really early episodes of my podcast. Um, yes. And, and as always, there's a, you know, the, w the organization that Noreen helped to get started along with John Walsh, the, yeah. the, um, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, NECMEC. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's another thing very much to the credit of Noreen and her tenacity. And she, along with John Walsh and a couple other people, got that started back in 1984. And they're still in existence to this day. They have... I've been told a whole floor of their building dedicated to just exploited children, like, you know, missing children, like, like sex crimes cases. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's some of the, that's some of the places you can go to. Great. No, thank you. I, I think that's important to leave them with too. Yeah, um, I, there's a couple questions here in the chat sure. that they had for you. Sure. Um, Stephanie was wondering if you had shared your information with the police. A little bit. Yeah, I did. Um, it's like I said in the last six episodes, the, it, it, the, some of the meetings that I had with Ron and Mark and Yellowbag were highly edited because we were talking about doing just that. And I didn't want to go putting information out there publicly mm -hmm. that probably shouldn't be made public, especially if you're talking about the possibility of a new investigation starting. I mean, that's why th that I have to go on hiatus right now because right. I can't be doing that. Cause like I'm getting to the point if it gets to that, if, cause we don't, we don't know if, if it has or not, if, or if it can or not, but you know, you just have to, um, you got to think logically too. You can't put, sensitive information like that out there no. but it is something we've we've talked about we've mm -hmm. talked about doing well i'm going to keep monitoring this you know thanks for answering my questions i think the floor is yours to share your final thoughts and kind of okay just to wrap show. it up because we have been going for a while now um so to just kind of wrap things up um 
this is the season finale of this first season of Faded Out, um, covering the Johnny Gosh case. Um, we are not disappearing online. Like the Facebook page is always going to be there. The Facebook group is always going to be there. Um, we're going to come back in a few months with a brand new season and a brand new case. Um, we're still thinking about um, cases to cover and probably be something more local to us because we are from Connecticut. Um, so, and there's hundreds and hundreds of missing person cold cases just in Connecticut. So maybe something more local, um, but we haven't decided yet. But I am also going to give updates regarding this first season as time goes on. This is not this is not the last mention of Johnny Gosh on Faded Out. In other words, awesome. like we're going to keep we're, we're going to update people, and I do want to go back to Des Moines and see everyone again um, sometime in the spring. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm hoping to make that happen. Um, and do something similar to what I did with the last six episodes, like record live on the ground. Um, I'll, I'll try to have better audio because that's an issue some people have brought up to me is that it's like the wind and all of that stuff. Yeah, no, well, next time, the next case we do, absolutely, we'll have better audio. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and actually, Jason had, for a while, had planned to come out with me to Des Moines, but, you know, something came up and he couldn't make it. Yeah. But maybe next time I go. Maybe Especially that, local, right? Like, if it's a local, yeah. we could go out anywhere. Yeah, if it's local it. here in Connecticut, we could go anywhere. And maybe next time I go to Des Moines, you will go on that trip. Oh, yeah. no, <laughs> it's like, oh, you're it. not going to. Yeah. It's like, yeah, no, it's, a, it's not a maybe. It's a definite. <laughs> that's right. Um, but, okay, so... So yeah, I guess that's it, everybody. Like I don't really know what what more to add. Um, you can always, I'll give my give my usual spiel at the end now. I guess um, you can always find us on Facebook, um, facebook.com/fadedoutpodcast. Um, there is the closed group. It's called Followers of Faded Out. Um, what else? <laughs> so, uh, yep. Follow us on our socials. Yeah, Faded out. Yeah, we got the group. You know, we got the group. Season two. Season two. Maybe I'm thinking. We don't have a start date yet, but yeah. I'm thinking probably the beginning of next year, January, maybe mm -hmm. something like that. Um, I was gonna say, you know, fans of Faded Out, share with us your thoughts on what cases you would like us to deep dive. And that might be interesting. No, no guarantee yeah. we'll take it, but I mean, we'll take suggestions absolutely. too. Yeah, we're definitely open to suggestions. Absolutely. Um, so Faded Out uh, on social media, please follow us there. We um, do also have an email address, fadedoutpodcast at gmail .com. I guess that's it. Um, I'm. Uh, uh, we're recording at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. This has been episode 31, the season finale of Faded Out. I want to thank Jason Panette for joining me today. So we had this dialogue. And I'm Sarah Dimio, and we'll see you next season. <laughs>